and welcome to the Sumungo's podcast. This is episode 73 and today's topic is asthma management with Anand Swami Nathan. Now you can watch this lecture in its entirety at www.continualist.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. And if you keep browsing on Continualist, you'll find hundreds more lectures and courses in emergency medicine and critical care from leading international experts. I hope you enjoy this episode. So I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome to the St. Mungo's podcast, Anand Swami Nathan, who will be known to most people listening, I'm sure. But for those that don't, he is an assistant clinical professor of emergency medicine at St. Joseph's Hospital in Patterson, New Jersey. Anand, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Anand, you did a wonderful talk on the basics of asthma management for the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine. We're going to play that shortly. But you very kindly joined me today to provide some pearls of wisdom for emergency clinicians. Well, I know you asked for five pearls, but I got to be honest, it is the way of emergency medicine. I'm not going to follow the rules. I actually only have one pearl, but I think it is kind of the most important thing that we need to think about when we're taking care of patients. One of the most challenging things that we have to do in emergency medicine is gain patient trust. The patient is in a vulnerable position. They're sick. They're in pain. They may be scared. And we need to have them trust us so we can get the information to figure out what's going on. And then we need them to trust us so that when we have a treatment plan, they're going to actually do that treatment plan. They think that we are really acting in their best interest. And so if we don't create that trust, none of this can happen. It limits our ability to make the right diagnosis and to get the right plan in place that's going to work for the patient. It's important then that we check our biases before we enter the room. If we bring those biases into the room when we're talking to the patient, it is very unlikely that we can establish that critical trust. And unfortunately, as humans, we have lots of cognitive biases. But the one that I think is the most important, the one that we really have to focus in on, is fundamental attribution error. And what this is, is when we attribute what's going on with the patient or the presentation to their character, almost like it's a moral failing that's brought them to the emergency department instead of the system itself failing the patient. When you make that fundamental attribution error, it's even more obvious when you put yourself into the place of the patient. And if you were in the same situation, we would explain it away to outside forces. It's not my fault that this happened. It's the system or it's the situation. And we have to give the patient that same benefit to really think it's not some character flaw for the patient. It is really the situation that has brought them to us. So for instance, if a patient comes in with an acute myocardial infarction, We might say, well, the patient's obese, they don't eat right, they don't exercise, and we're placing the fault of that acute myocardial infarction on the patient. Instead, what we really should be looking at is what are the possible situations that came into play? When we make that fundamental attribution error, basically what we're doing is we've made assumptions about the patient's life, and we've made these assumptions to the point that it's almost as if we know everything about this patient based on very little information. I think what we can do is first understand that we all make this fundamental attribution error. We do it all the time. It's not just limited to medicine. We do it in everyday life. If you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off, what you think is, wow, that person is a real asshole. But maybe there's something going on. Maybe they're rushing to the hospital to see a sick family member. Maybe they're running late for a job interview. And so we have to kind of place it into that frame. We know that if we're driving and we cut somebody off, we're like, oh, I'm I'm so sorry. I was just in a rush. That's what we're thinking about ourselves. We should give the same benefit of the doubt to the patient or to the other person in that interaction. Of course, it's easy to define the fundamental attribution or to find that cognitive bias. It's much harder for us to really act 
and and not place that on the patient. So what we need to do is when we go in to see the patient, think about what biases might be clouding our judgment, try to put them aside and just take care of the patient in front of you. Don't be judgmental. Don't think about character flaws or moral failings that have brought the patient to us. Really focus on what's going on with the patient and what they need from us today. I think if we can do that for all of our patients, we will really garner that trust. And that's going to make it easier for us to make a diagnosis and easier for us to put that plan in place to take care of the patient. I think that is an absolutely fantastic pearl, and Thank you very much. Okay, so let's now just jump straight into your lecture. Hey everyone, I'm Anand Swami Nathan coming from the US and I'm going to be talking to you guys about the basic approach to asthma management. We're going to move through mild, moderate and severe disease with asthma. We're not going to talk as much about the crashing patient as its own real subject and focus. We know in these patients, the major thing that we are worried about is bronchospasm. Those, uh, those big airways and the smaller airways start to really tighten up patient gets wheezy, they're not moving good air. And so all of the things that we're going to do is to try to relieve that. But there are some other things in the back of our heads, depending on how bad their asthma is, that we also have to be watching out for. And this is one of the key concepts for us to integrate in terms of all emergency care, but asthma is definitely a good example, is that spectrum of disease. Asthma is a bit of a wastebasket because the patient could have mild moderate, severe, or crashing. And they can be anywhere on that spectrum. And we need to understand that when we assess the patient, we determine where on that spectrum they are, that dictates our management. Certain management approaches don't work as well if the patient has very mild asthma, it's just a waste of resources. And certain ones don't work well if they have really severe asthma as well. So figuring out where on that spectrum is really critical. Let's start with the patient with mild asthma symptoms. They tell you that they've got some chest tightness, maybe a little short of breath, maybe a little bit of a cough, but they don't have retractions. They don't have a very high respiratory rate. You do hear wheezing, so you know they are moving air. They're not in severe distress. These are run-of-the-mill patients. We see them all the time in the emergency room. And the thing that we really want to be focusing on is getting in some beta agonist. That fog in the room is the typical that we see, right? So we turn on that nebulizer treatment, we crank up the albuterol or whatever beta agonist you use, maybe add a little bit of an anticholinergic to it. Most of these patients get better pretty quickly. One of the things that we do have to understand though is that we don't have to go with nebulizer treatment. If you're using nebulizer treatment, typically give about five milligrams over 10 to 20 minutes, and we repeat as necessary. But there's a bunch of studies that tell us that actually using an MDI is as good as using a nebulizer, except it's less resource intensive. So if we give six to 12 puffs of an MDI, that's actually equivalent to that nebulizer treatment of five milligrams over 10 to 20 minutes. And that can actually get the patient on their way a little bit quicker, get them reversed quicker, get them out the door quicker. So if you have an MDI available and that's less resource intensive in your particular place, that's a good thing to reach for. And again, that's going to be your typical beta agonist. In the US, it's albuterol. In other places, it's salbutamol. Whatever your inhaled beta agonist is, go with that. Remember, you can use MDI instead of nebulizer. Now, we mentioned this before. One of the things you can also add to that is an anticholinergic. Anticholinergics help by reversing some of the parasympathetic tone that happens. This can dry up secretions. It can help with some bronchospasm as well. 
And this is definitely something that we typically will add because it has been shown to reduce the rate of hospitalization, even in the mild to moderate group of asthmatics. So we're gonna add this with our beta agonist, our inhaled beta agonist. These two things are gonna go together. In fact, in a lot of order sets, you click one thing, you get them both at the same time. Another thing that we really have to be focused in, even on the mild asthmatics, is the use of steroids. We've got pretty good data that tells us that anytime a patient presents with asthma, if you give them a short course of steroids, they are less likely to rebound, they're less likely to get admitted in the next short period of time. So we almost always want to give steroids, a short course of systemic steroids, to a patient who presents with an asthma exacerbation. The exception to me is the patient who says, oh, I'm a little bit tight and I forgot my MDI at home. I forgot my inhaler in my house. You give them one puff, they feel better. They probably don't need a short course of steroids, but most other patients, in fact, almost all other patients probably do. We can go with something like prednisone, one mg per kg up to about 60 milligrams. That's a great approach. There's other things that you can use. We do have good data telling us that giving it intravenously or parenterally is no better than giving an oral steroid. So again, from a resource utilization in these mild asthmatics, even up to the moderate, giving them an oral steroid is fine. One other thing to consider is whether your patient can fill a prescription. So you can give them prednisone now, but if they can't fill the prescription for a couple more days of prednisone when they leave the hospital, that's gonna be a problem. You're not really getting the benefit. And so we do have some recent data telling us that one to two doses of dexamethasone can be just as good or, or close to as good as giving a short course of prednisone. So often if I have a patient who tells me I have trouble getting my medications, I can't afford my medications, I'll give them one dose of dexamethasone in the emergency department knowing it might be not quite as good as the prednisone, but it's better than only getting one dose of prednisone and getting nothing else after that. As far as diagnostics, there's not much to do here in the mild asthmatic. You don't need a chest x-ray. You don't need any blood work. People talk about using PFTs to see if the patient's improving. Those are only useful if you know what their baseline PFTs are. I find a lot of my patients don't usually get those kind of tests. They don't know what their baseline is. And there's a little bit of effort that's involved there too. So I don't use it. In fact, in mild asthmatics, I don't think you really need much of any diagnostic testing at all. That's the mild asthmatic. Let's move from mild up the spectrum to the moderate asthmatic. And things are gonna change a little bit here. In these patients, we're still gonna give the inhaled beta agonist, still gonna give the inhaled anticholinergic, still gonna give steroids, and most of the time we can still give them oral steroids. But these patients are a little sicker, and so we need to bring some other medications to the bedside to help these patients. Now, these patients usually are a little more tachypnic, they're a little tighter. I wouldn't say they look like they're in extremis, but they look a little sicker. And some of this is just your judgment of saying, I think this is a moderate asthmatic instead of just the mild one. And so in these patients, we should be considering magnesium. Magnesium has been thrown around in the use of, in the uh, treatment of asthma and a lot of other um, diseases for decades. And we haven't found a huge benefit from magnesium, except in the group with moderate to severe asthma. The group of patients where you look at them, and you're like, I might have to admit this person to the hospital. That's the group where magnesium can have a benefit, where it has been shown time and time again to reduce the rate of hospitalization. And so in these patients, the moderate going over to the severe end, I'm definitely gonna be giving a magnesium. Typical dose, two grams over 30 to 60 minutes. We should be comfortable with repeating that dose, understanding that magnesium very rapidly cycles intracellularly, extracellularly, and then gets peed out, eliminated as well very rapidly. And so it's hard to keep a sustained level of magnesium in the serum. And so if you give two grams of magnesium and it doesn't get the response you want, you can give another two grams. 
or even another two grams. And we're going to get to high dose magnesium when we talk about the severe asthmatic, but even in the moderate, I'll at least give four or six grams of magnesium before I say I've gotten all the benefit from magnesium I'm going to get. So magnesium, definitely useful in the moderate to severe asthmatic, helps with staving off hospitalization. Again, because we're looking at that patient and thinking they might need to be hospitalized, I'm going to fluid load these patients. The reason is because there are huge insensible losses from an asthma exacerbation. And the patient tells you they were totally fine an hour ago, and then boom, all of a sudden they had this asthma flare up. Well, they probably don't need a lot of fluids. But a lot of our patients are struggling with that asthma, with those asthma symptoms for days before they actually come into the hospital. And in those patients, again, there are huge insensible losses. So I'm going to make sure that they have an adequate preload. And what I'm thinking in the back of my head is this person's probably not going to need an airway. They're not going to need to go on a vent. But if something goes sideways and I end up needing to do that, I want to have their preload volume given back to them, what they need. So I'm going to fluid load these patients. If they're on the sicker end, I'm going to aggressively fluid load them 20 to 30 cc's per kilo. If they're on the not so sick end, I'll start with a 500 to 1,000 cc bolus, and I think that's totally fine as well. Non-invasive is something else that I'm going to consider in the moderate asthmatic. And again, this is really a bedside judgment of how sick is that person? How high is their work of breathing? If they're edging from the moderate over to the severe, if their work of breathing is pretty high, then I'm going to reach for non-invasive pretty early. Because we know that even though asthma is typically a disease of exhalation, they have a hard time getting the breath out. As the asthma continues, as they have days and days of symptoms, they start to tire out. They can't maintain that work of breathing for a long time. And non-invasive can help. They can help to rest the patient, give them some energy back so that they can do better. So non-invasive is something I'm going to use. I'm going to use that along with my inhaled beta agonist so we can do those in line. And it's important to know how to set this up. We did a video years ago on Coriem. It is totally free. I encourage you guys to go over and check that out because it shows how to set up a non-invasive machine in case respiratory isn't right there at your side to help you set that up. So that's a moderate asthmatic. Again, we're adding magnesium. We're going to fluid load them. We're going to consider non-invasive. Now, as we edge up that spectrum from moderate to severe, again, we have to change our tact, change our approach, and reconsider some of the medications we've given and add some other medications. And in these severe asthmatics, the thing that I'm always thinking in the back of my head is I might have to intubate this patient. And I don't want to. I want to do everything I can to avoid that intubation. Everything that I do to take care of that patient is with the understanding that intubation carries a lot of morbidity and even mortality with it because ventilation of asthmatics can be very challenging. Now, we're not going to get into the ventilation. That's more for the crashing asthmatic. We can do that another time. But for this severe asthmatic, in the back of my head is I don't want to intubate this person. So I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that. If you haven't already reached for non-invasive, you definitely want to do it here. These patients have a huge energy expenditure for work of breathing. We can take some of that away, help to rest them by giving them non-invasive. One of the challenges with non-invasive in the severe patient is that they might be hypercarbic, they might be hypoxemic, they might be altered, and they might not tolerate that non-invasive mask. And what we can do in those situations is give them a little bit of help. It's almost like procedural sedation for non-invasive. And the typical drug I'm reaching for here is ketamine. We love ketamine and emergency medicine. This is a place where it really does play a great role. It doesn't take away their drive to breathe. It doesn't overly sedate them, but it helps them to comply with that mask. It might have a little bit of vasodilatory properties. I'm not sure that I get that much from the ketamine, but I really like the fact that the patient is still awake. I can still talk to them, but they're going to tolerate that mask a little better. 
So if you can't get the non-invasive onto the patient, consider using a little bit of pharmacology to help to encourage them, to help to make it a little bit easier for them to tolerate that mask. And the next challenge is with getting that beta agonist into the lungs. These patients with severe asthma are tight. They're not moving a lot of air. And so you give them all of this inhaled beta agonist, it doesn't really do much because they're not getting it down to where it needs to go. And so here, I'm gonna reach for epinephrine and I'm gonna reach for either IM epinephrine or even consider an infusion of epinephrine. Before the advent of inhaled beta agonist, epi was our go-to drug for asthma. Sub-Q or IM epi, we know it works. We know it's safe. We just have to apply it properly. So the patient comes in really tight. They're not moving much air. I don't think much beta agonist is getting down there. I'll often start them with the anaphylaxis dose of epinephrine. So 0.5 milligrams of epi IM. If they get better with that, fantastic, no problem. If they don't get better with that, or they're getting sicker, then I'm gonna to switch to intravenous infusion of epinephrine. You can start this at five to 10 micrograms. So a much smaller dose, because it's going IV, five to 10 micrograms, and then titrate up as needed. You can rebolus as needed. The key here is to make sure that there's actually beta agonist getting to the lungs to reverse that bronchoconstriction and getting it inhaled may not work because of how tight they are. So start with IM epi, 0.5 milligrams. You can escalate to IV epi in an infusion, five to 10 micrograms to start, and then you can ratchet that up as needed. I mentioned magnesium in the moderate asthmatic. I'm gonna mention it again because in the severe asthmatic, I'm pushing my mag doses even higher. Again, for that issue of the magnesium moving in and out of the serum really quickly, getting a serum level up and constantly at the level you want it can be challenging. So in these patients, I'm going to load them with magnesium and give them an infusion. Typically what I will do in the severe asthmatic is give four milligrams, I'm sorry, four grams over uh, 30 to 60 minutes. And then I'm gonna follow that with an infusion of four grams per hour. And I'm gonna do that until I get them turned around. And I'll say that most of the time I get them turned around in a couple of hours. Whether the magnesium did it or all the other things that I'm giving them did it, we'll never know. The nice thing about magnesium is if you're given the epi, you give the magnesium, the epi can cause some tachydysrhythmias, magnesium can balance that out a little bit. So magnesium is kind of a, a nice adjunct here. I think it has a role in these higher doses. Don't have a lot of data on it, but there is a good pediatric study in an ICU showing that these high doses of mag got the patients out of the ICU faster. It's not the best data, but it's something for us to go on. All right, that's a little bit of a whirlwind tour through mild, moderate, and severe asthma. The mild asthmatic patient is the one who's moving air, they're not in respiratory distress, and their focus is gonna be beta agonist inhaled, either by nebulizer or by MDI, anticholinergic inhaled, and remember to give them a course of steroids, either a couple of days of prednisone, or if they have trouble filling their prescriptions, consider that dexamethasone as a single dose, which is just about as good as a short course of prednisone. In the moderate asthmatic, we're gonna add magnesium because it staves off those admissions to the hospital. We're gonna consider if they're on the moderate to severe end, do I need to fluid load these patients? And do I need to add non-invasive as part of my management approach? And then in the severe asthmatic, we're gonna do non-invasive. We're gonna push our magnesium, magnesium doses even higher, but the main thing that we need to change here is giving parenteral beta agonism because the inhaled beta agonist might not get into the lungs. So we can start with IM epi 0.5 milligrams, same dose you give for anaphylaxis, or we can go with IV epinephrine, five to 10 micrograms, a much smaller dose as an infusion until the patient starts to turn around. So that is again, 
a whirlwind tour of asthma. And I thank you guys. Uh, if you need anything, you can always reach out to me on Twitter. Um, you'll have my email address. Hit me up anytime if there's anything I can do to help or provide any additional information. Thanks so much. So Alan, thank you very, very much for that fantastic talk and the wonderful pearl of wisdom. But before we let you go, we always ask each of our guests one final question, if you don't mind. So if I could take you back on a time machine to meet your junior self, just starting their career, what one piece of advice would you give them? It's a great question. It's really interesting because I'm happy with where I am right now. And everything that came before is what has led to where I am now. And I really wouldn't want to erase any of those things because they all contribute to who I am. I think if I could tell myself anything from you know, 15, 20 years ago when I was a trainee, it would really be to take the time along the ride to see those great cases, the ones that maybe didn't go as well and what we could learn from them, and also to take the time to use those mentors that I had. I wish that I could go back and get even more training out of those people who helped me become the physician that I am. So I think that's probably what I would tell my junior self, which maybe not exactly the answer that you're looking for, but there's nothing dramatic that I would change because it's all what's led to where I am now. Not at all. I think that is wonderful advice. Anna, look, thank you very, very much. You're a very, very busy man, and we really, really appreciate your time and all the wonderful stuff that you've given us today. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to reach out and, and educate others as, as much as we can. This is really why we do what we do. So I hope that this is useful to people, that people learn from this, and they then deliver better care to the patients that they see. Many, many thanks again to Anand Swami Nathan for that wonderful talk and the pearls of wisdom. Remember, you can watch this lecture in its entirety at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Until next time, please take care. <laughs>